This is Covenant Presbyterian Church Men's Bible Study for Wednesday, April the 22nd. And we are in now Hebrews chapter 12. We last week got through the first two verses, a great word of encouragement uh, to us. Uh, that passage of verses 1 and 2 flows right on into verse 3, and that's where we're going to pick up today. So, I'll invite you now to open your Bible to the letter, or as I sometimes say, the sermon to the Hebrews. Chapter 12, let us begin in prayer. Almighty and all-glorious Father, we give you thanks and praise for your great love and rich mercy toward us, for you have sent your only begotten Son, who is himself the image of the invisible God, the the very imprint, the express image of God to come into this world. And though He is the very one who upholds the universe by the word of His power, He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And having made purification for sins, he was raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and now he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, with the name that is above every name, and far above all power and principality. So we come because he has made a new and living way by his blood into the most holy place. And so we come in His name and we seek the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon us. We come with confidence in Christ and draw near to the throne of grace that we might find grace and mercy to help in our time of need. And we ask you to help us now as we study your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit will cause it to take deep root in our hearts and to change our minds and to strengthen us so that we might run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. In his name we pray, amen. All right, so we begin at chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and that has reference to the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament people of God who had true faith, who lived by faith, who were justified by faith, and we have a, a listing of some of those in chapter 11. That's the reference since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. 
such as Abel and Noah and Moses and Abraham and Sarah and David and on it goes. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder or author and perfecter or finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And we said last week that Jesus, in his uh, death on the cross and resurrection from the dead and ascension into heaven, all of which is referred to right there, in verse 2, um, Jesus is our great Savior. But as our Savior, He also set for us an example. And th th this is, I think, the moral or ethical or spiritual imperative, the command and the encouragement to us that's coming here in verse 2. That just as Jesus did, just as Jesus, for the joy set before Him, for the return to glory with His Father in heaven, He endured the cross, He despised the shame. So likewise, we, in the race that we run against the world's opposition, the world's persecution of us. We look beyond the, the opposition and persecution and adversities and difficulties in this life. We look to that glory which is yet to be revealed in us, the glory which we will share with Christ if indeed we suffer together with Him. Romans 8. All right. So the, the admonition continues at verse 3. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Jesus himself suffered this hostility, this opposition, this adversity. And Jesus said, you know, if they hate me, they will hate you. And that's just Christian discipleship 101. So, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, right? Run the race with endurance. Look to Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Have... Uh, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. We haven't been through what Jesus has been through. And by the way, we in America have not been through what Christians throughout history and throughout the world this very day are going through. Um, persecution of Christians is not something of, that's isolated to the first century or um, to the 16th century. 
or the 17th century. It's 21st century. There are your brothers and sisters around the globe who are actually suffering unto death. But have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now, at this point, the letter to the Hebrews takes a really interesting turn. It's encouraging us to persevere through persecution. It's reminding us that things really aren't as bad as they could be and have been for other people. But now, the Word speaks to us with an interesting shift or a, a, a different way of looking at persecution, opposition, hostility. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now that is a direct quotation of Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. This passage is also alluding to Deuteronomy 8, 5. Deuteronomy 8, 5. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. All right. So now the experience of persecution or hostility or opposition is put in a different light. It is saying that these negative experiences are the means by which the Lord is disciplining us as His own sons, the sons that He loves. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Well, let's just pause here for uh, just a minute and make sure that we're starting into this uh, with uh, a clear perspective. Yes, the Scripture is teaching us that the Lord uses, the, the Lord God uses the world's opposition and hostility toward us as His means, His rod of discipline. Have you ever thought about that? How, how could that be? How could it be that when you have ungodly, anti-Christian people persecuting you, saying evil things about you, uh, socially ostracizing you, 
maybe politically persecuting you, maybe violently persecuting you, in what sense could that be the Lord's discipline? Well, I think at least whenever we're going through any kind of adversity or difficulty in life, including this persecution, it is a way of purifying and strengthening us, purifying and strengthening the church. Think about what Jesus said. Love your enemies, do good to them that hate you, pray for those who persecute you. That's, that's to be our response to those who do evil to us. Um, you, you have Jesus' teaching there in the Sermon on the Mount echoed in the letter to the Romans, chapter 12, in which the Apostle Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, what is it to be overcome by evil? To be overcome by evil is to adopt the principles and the tactics and the behaviors and actions of evil, right? You treat me wrong, I'm going to treat you wrong right back. Well, if we do that, then we ourselves have been overcome by evil. But we're called to overcome evil with good. Well, what kind of people, what kind of people are people who can really do good to those who hate us, who can, who can return good for evil, who can pray for those who persecute us? who can turn the other cheek. What kind of people are those people? Well, those people are spiritually strong. Those people are people who have been trained. Those people are self-disciplined, but really who have been, who are disciplined by the Lord, who are living so closely to Him and depending so greatly on Him and under all adverse circumstances seeking to imitate Him, well, they're disciplined people. And, and how do you get that discipline? You get the discipline by being put to the test. How do you get stronger? You get stronger by adding weight to the barbell, right? How do you build up endurance? You build up endurance by running farther today than you did yesterday. And, and, and so if we're beginning, if we can reframe the negative experiences that we have you know, in the world, and if we can reframe that and say, okay, this is, this is part of the Lord's training. 
uh, and I'm going to respond in a way that he, he wants me to respond. Also, moving on to another sub-point, anytime we face an adversity, a difficulty, a, a form of suffering or persecution or hostility from the world, which is really the context here in Hebrews 12, you know, it can cause us to look at ourselves it can cause us to look at ourselves and see the sin in ourselves. And it can cause us to um, go deeper into repentance for our sins and to acknowledge that, um, for example, uh, we haven't been as faithful in prayer as the Word calls us to be. Uh, you know, I think about our experience right now going through the COVID shutdown and the, the extra time that I have had, uh, in a way, quiet time, I guess, you know, the extra quiet time, less, less sort of um, um, ad, ad, ad administrative kinds of distractions and that sort of thing. Uh, to consider my own uh, spiritual life and spiritual pilgrimage and, and to be called regularly, regularly throughout the day to a time of prayer. Well, it's, it, that's all kind of a, a type of, of, of discipline. Um, and, you know, people talk about, because of the COVID shutdown, reevaluating life and um, young parents, young families with children reevaluating what will it be like when life gets back to so-called normal? Well, I think some of our young families really hope that they're gonna they're gonna continue to to spend a little more time with their children than they did before. You know, the busyness, the distractions, the trivialities, all the ways in which we waste time, now people are beginning to see, you know, um, kind of being convicted, being, being shown, oh, um, you've really wasted a lot of time that you could have been spending with your children, and, and now through this, these circumstances you're, you're, you're being forced to in a way, and that shows, shows parents uh, the, the blessing of being with the children. So on the one hand, it's kind of a conviction of sin, but it's also a kind of uh, encouraging blessing. So any kind of opposition, hostility, suffering, causes us to, to, to look at our lives in light of Christ and in light of His call to discipleship, and it's, it's a time for us to assess ourselves and um, for us to uh, draw nearer to Him in true repentance and faith. So, the, the passage continues. If you are left without discipline, I'm at verse 8, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I was reading... Um, one uh, commentator wrote this, 
Roman nobles had illegitimate sons who were financially supported but received no discipline. Interesting comment. Roman nobles had illegitimate sons who were financially supported but received no discipline. How do you think those boys turned out? Not very good. You know anybody? You know anybody who was financially provided for by their father but had no discipline? You know somebody like that. How'd that work out? Not too good. Not too good. Okay. So, you know, neglect is the worst form of abuse. Neglect is the worst form of abuse. And so the author to the Hebrews is simply taking a life lesson from human experience and from the Word of God and saying, when you're going through a hard time, the Lord is disciplining you. And get this, it's evidence that He loves you. Ah! Now, we, you know, that's right, we, we don't like to be loved like that, right? If we had good and faithful human earthly fathers who disciplined us, we didn't, they did it because they loved us even if they did it imperfectly. They did it because they loved us. It was the right thing to do. We didn't like being loved like that at the moment, but we're probably thankful that we were. Well, the same point is here. This is a, the evidence of God's love for us. It, it, isn't that interesting? You know, people sometimes say, well, you know, if a God is a God of love, then how come? Meaning, you know, if God loves us so much, how come He doesn't make everything perfect for everybody? Right? If God loves us so much, why doesn't He make everything perfect for us all the time? Well, maybe the answer to that question is He doesn't want a bunch of spoiled brats. How about that? Maybe that's the answer to the question. Because he doesn't want a bunch of spoiled brats for his children. And so, and that's putting it very crassly, and it's putting it down very much at, at, the, at the human level, but I think you see the point. And, and the author of Hebrews is saying as much here. Uh, verse 8, Besides, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits? That is the one who, who is disciplining us for the sake of our eternal benefit, our eternal life. For they, our human fathers, verse 10, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. There it is. There's the goal. That we may share in His holiness. Or to say it a different way, that we might be conformed to the image of 
his son. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so, um, the passage is, is saying that uh, the Lord disciplines us, including even through persecution, in the case of the, the first century Hebrew Christians, and, and in our case as well, in order that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. And that's an echo again of Romans 8. That the, God's goal for us is our holiness, our Christ-likeness. And persecution can reveal to us our character and our sinful nature and our lack of faith, etc., etc., etc. And so that can be a means of God's disciplining us, putting us through the refiner's fire, burning away the dross so that the gold will come to the, to the top, so that we'll be purified, Right? All of this is uh, part of what's wrapped up in this passage. But I also want to connect it to a previous passage in Hebrews. And that is from chapter 2, beginning at verse 10. So keep your hand at verse, at, in chapter 12, but go back to chapter 2. And let's look at uh, verse 10. For it was fitting that He, God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, there's that word again, I wanted you to see that um, the same word that's used at verse 2, chapter 12, verse 2, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, is used back here at uh, chapter 2, verse 10. Should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, I, it, it's like the letter to the Hebrews is like a, one of these great works of music that you know, or like when you're watching a movie, there's a, a score, a musical score to the movie, and, you know, a certain uh, movement of the music will come back in at various different points. And um, that's, that's sort of what happens throughout the letter to the Hebrews. Because let's, let's listen to this. First of all, the, the, in chapter 2, it's speaking of Jesus our Savior, who brings us many sons to glory. But God, in order to do that, made Him, Jesus, the founder of our salvation, made Him perfect through suffering. Now, we've talked about this before, uh, months ago in chapter 2. When it says that He was made perfect through suffering, that does not mean, of course, it does not mean that there was any imperfection or flaw in the sense of flaw in Jesus' character that had to be made perfect, that had to be made corrected 
through suffering? No, absolutely not. What it means is that in his new human nature, in order for him to be our perfect Savior, the one who could perfectly save us because he was perfectly suited for us, the only way for him to be who he needed to be in order to be our perfect Savior is that he would himself endure suffering as we would endure suffering. And he would endure that suffering on our behalf. We're going to finish this passage in chapter 2 and then I'm going to show you something else which I hope will clarify it. Verse 11, For he who sanctifies God in Christ and those who are sanctified all have one source. He who sanctifies us, Jesus, Jesus is the one who sanctifies us, and we who are sanctified all have one source, right? It's God. It all comes from God. That is why He, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, the the author here, what I want you to see, and you can underline it with your pencil or highlight it, you see... Jesus is the one who brings many sons to glory. Right? God brings us many sons to glory through Jesus. By His suffering. And and so we, Jesus and we, are together as brothers under the one source, God the Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Verse 11 and 12. Jesus, He is not ashamed to call us brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. And this is the Son of God speaking to the Father. This is Jesus speaking to God the Father. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. All right? And again, I will put my trust in him. That was, that was Jesus' words, speaking of his trust in his Father. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. That's Jesus, that's the Son of God speaking. That the, the picture here is of Jesus having saved us and, and, and the Father having adopted us as His sons, as His children, the brothers of Jesus, that, that Jesus brings us in to the great congregation of heaven and rejoices in the great work of salvation that He has won for us. And He did that because He was our perfect Savior. He, identi- he, he suffered with us. And then that gets us to... Uh, and by the way, the, these verses, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That is a quotation of Psalm 22, 22. 
Now this is very interesting. Maybe we need to slow down and just make a note of this. So keep your hand at Hebrews. We're now at Hebrews chapter 2 and one finger in Hebrews 12. But go back to Isaiah, uh, Psalm 22. Now you know the first part of Psalm 22. You know the first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know that Psalm 22 is a precise prophecy of the crucifixion of Jesus down to the details, all right? But what you might not know, because we, we so often, unfortunately, only focus on Psalm 22.1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we focus on those precise details of the prophecy of the crucifixion, uh, which are laid out in, a, in an incredible fashion. They have pierced my hands and feet, etc., etc. What we don't know is, or what we may not be as familiar with, is that Psalm 22 goes on. It's a prophecy of, of Jesus' resurrection. It's a prophecy of Jesus' victory over death. Right? At verse 21 in Psalm 22. 2221, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. So the author to the Hebrews picks up on this prophecy in Psalm 22, 21, of Jesus' uh, reward for his death. He was rewarded. He was rewarded with those who were given to him by the Father, those who would believe in him. He was given a multitude of his brothers, together with whom he can praise the Father. And that's, what, um, that's what's going on here. Um, when in Hebrews chapter 2, it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Then when it gets down to uh, that verse in, in the last half of 13, Behold, I and the children God has given me, that is a quotation from Isaiah 8, verses 17 and 18. It has to do with the salvation that Jesus has won, the victory that he has won. It has to do with the fact that his death was effective for the salvation of the elect, those whom the Father had given to him from all eternity. Now, I'm, I'm making the connection here be, because this goes on in, to Hebrews chapter 4. And again, it's sort of like that musical score of the movie is kind of coming back and swelling back up again. You know, hear these words from Hebrews 4, beginning at verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, that is, our confession of faith in Him. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, this statement that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, you see, goes back to chapter 2 when it says that the founder of our salvation was made perfect through suffering. He's able to sympathize with us. This is the point. And when it says that Jesus was tempted as we are, when it says in verse uh, in chapter 4, that he is, he, he, we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That is to say, he never sinned. That temptation has, has to do not only with moral temptations, but really the temptations which, Jesus, which are lifted up in Scripture. The, the temptation in the wilderness, for example. The temptation not to trust in God. Right? The temptation to seek glory and honor for himself the, the, uh, the cheap way, the easy way. The temptation um, to, to put God to the test, to, to, to see if God would really do what God had promised to do. Those are the temptations. Spiritual temptations, deep spiritual temptations, which Satan placed upon Jesus in the wilderness. And then think about Jesus' temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. The temptation what? The temptation at the end to fall away. That's all he had to do. Father, let this cup pass from me. Is there any way this cup could pass from me? And, you, and he's struggling in great agony in Gethsemane. This is, him, this is his temptation. All he's got to do at this moment is call it off. And he, and he doesn't go to the cross. You see, that would be his falling away. All he's got to do is go, is, is go to the high priest and say, Oh no, I'm, I'm with you. I fully support you. There must have been some misunderstanding. Or I take back what I said. That's all he has to do. Recant. Deny the faith. And, and so, the point here is that we have a great high priest who has been put to the test, faced the temptation to fall away, to, as it were, deny the faith, to give it up, to quit running the race. Our Savior, you see, is perfectly suited to be our Savior because He's been through everything that we'll ever go through. In, 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 in our life on earth following Him. Including 
dying for his profession of faith. You see? All he had to do was give it up. I don't believe it anymore. I don't believe I am who I am anymore. I don't believe God is, you know. He, all he had to do is, is, is quit. But he went all the way through death. He ran the race all the way through. And he did it to bring many sons to glory. I'm, I'm hoping, I, I know I hadn't done a very good job of, of, of connecting these dots. But you see, we've got this, we've got this dot, uh, we've, we, we've got Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And that was the way that he brought many sons to glory. But he did it through suffering. Right? Well, now we are the sons. His adopted brothers and sisters. And we're following him. And, we, and when we follow Christ, we follow in the path of his suffering. Now, we don't look for that suffering. We don't go out and ask for it. But it's inevitable in some form or fashion. It's inevitable. If we're following Christ, we're going to hit, hit the, the wall of opposition from the world and our own flesh, our own sinful nature, and the devil himself. It's inevitable. And we have to understand, even suffering, persecution, hostility. Right? Well, that's nothing more than Jesus himself went through. And so all of these dots are, I hope, connecting that as, as, the, son, as the adopted sons of God, as the adopted brothers and sisters of Jesus, you see, we, we are called and encouraged and admonished to press on, to run the race. And to endure the discipline. Endure the discipline on the way to being made perfectly like Christ. Which is the glory that awaits us. Now just a quick word about this word sons. Uh, the father uh, disciplines the son he loves, etc. And, 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 and God has brought many sons to glory through His capital S, Son, Jesus. Let me just say quickly that uh, this word sons, when it refers to us as those who have been born again by the Spirit, adopted as the sons of God, that includes women. Of course it does. It, and uh, it's, it's not a sexist term. It, it just Sometimes the Bible uh, refers to the children of God, the true children, right? That's a more generic term, and the Bible uses that term. But the reason that Hebrews and, and Romans uh, more often than not uses the word sons is that it, it wants to emphasize our identity in Christ. Now, that includes females as well. But it, the emphasis is on not just us in and of ourselves, but us and our identity in Christ, in Christ, having been redeemed by Christ, having, having been united to Christ. 
And so it uses this word, we are sons in the Son. Lowercase s, in the capital S, okay, Son. That's our identity before the Father. It's a wonderful identity uh, before the Father. That, that Jesus is God's eternally beloved Son, and in Him, in Him, united to Him, and having our identity in Him, we too are His beloved. And He loves us with the same love. The Father loves us with the same love and with the same degree of love with which He loves His eternally beloved, capital S, Son, Jesus Christ. Not because of anything in us, not because of anything about us, and not not us apart from Jesus, but in Christ, you see, the love that the Father has for His Son is the love that He has for us. Now John says in in his first uh, letter, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. And he uses the word children there, the more generic term. So it works both ways. But for our ladies who are listening, I just wanted to give a word of assurance that when, when the Bible uses the word sons or brothers, um, it does that uh, not as a slight to the female gender and not as any form of exclusivity or anything of that nature. It's really just trying to put the uh, identity, our identity in Jesus him, himself. All right, there's another aspect to um, the discipline of the Lord. And it, it's, it's not so germane really to Hebrews 12, but I just might as, I want to go ahead and say it. And, and that is, is that um, sometimes we're disciplined be, because of our sins. Sometimes we are disciplined because of our sins. But we're never condemned if we are, if we are truly in Christ. If our faith is in Christ, if we're walking in Christ, you know, if He's our Savior, we're disciplined because of our sins, but we're never condemned because of our sins. Discipline is not the same as wrath. The Lord's loving discipline is not the same thing as wrath in the sense of His condemning wrath, in the sense of His righteous condemning wrath. No, that has been poured out. That righteous condemning wrath upon our sins has been poured out upon Jesus on the cross. That's over and that's done with. Um, but there is discipline. And, and you know this, right? Sin has consequences. Sin sometimes has quite natural consequences. Sometimes sin has... Uh, Social relational consequences. That's a form of discipline. The Lord's discipline. And, and, and sometimes uh, sin has the discipline of, you know, our, our own introspective guilt and shame and, and the Lord really pointing that out to us, showing it to us. Ooh, that's, that's discipline. That's discipline. 
But it's not condemnation. And we should always look to the cross. And, and, and you know, sometimes there, there, are, there are long-term earthly consequences to sin. Right? You know, sin that leads to broken families and broken relationships between parents and children. And, you know, those, those things ripple. They, and they keep on rippling. And the Lord in His mercy can, can heal those breaks and, and, and restore relationships. But, you know, that sometimes, you know, we just know. I mean, you know, right? You can look at the book of David, the life of David, life of King David, the wonderful life he lived until his sin with Bathsheba and his uh, arrangement for the murder of Uriah in battle. And after that, when you're reading through David's life story, really his, his life is never the same. It just begins to unravel. It just begins to unravel. God, God didn't remove his steadfast love from David. God didn't, God didn't break his covenant with David. But David's earthly life really from that point on just unraveled and it became a mess. And it wasn't fun anymore. And it wasn't pretty anymore. And it wasn't great anymore. Right? All kinds of, all kinds of trouble. Including trouble with his own son Absalom. Right? So I just wanted to say that, but, but the reason I say it is to remember that when we, when we face hardship and adversity, if, if, if we know ourselves to be Christian and we're trusting in the Lord and we've laid our sins on Jesus, then when we have these adversities and these, this suffering and the difficulties or opposition or hostility or persecution, it, it's not a matter of asking the question, well, does God not love me anymore? Is God not with me anymore? No, the answer to the question is, yeah. He does love you, and He is with you. And He's disciplining you because He loves you. So, you know, we, 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 again, we tend to think, uh, we, we, we tend to think, we would prefer to think that God would always show His love for us in ways that make us happy in earthly terms. It's just not true. It's just not how it is. Sometimes God shows His love for us by ordaining adversities, difficulties, oppositions, even persecution. Sometimes that's how God shows His love for us because that's how He is disciplining us because He loves us. And He is working a greater good in our life. He's working the greater good of our being conformed to the image of His Son. So ultimately, that's right. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Verse 12, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. Well, the author there is alluding to Isaiah 35, verses 3 and 4, which is a prophecy of the return from the exile. A prophecy of the, the return of the Jews from the Babylonian exile. Uh, lift up your hands 
Strengthen your knees. Get ready to run. Make straight paths for your feet because you're coming home. Well, the exile was what? The exile was discipline for the old covenant Jewish people. The exile in Babylon was God's rod of discipline upon them. His chastisement upon them. And now when that's over, He's calling them home. It's the same way. So he's, the author of the Hebrews here is using this familiar Old Testament language to, to encourage, to, to, to put the negative experiences in, in, a, in a positive light, in a gospel light, that God is not abandoning you at this moment in the difficulty that you're going through. He's actually calling you to run with endurance through it. Because having disciplined you, now He's working the greater good of your sanctification. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Run the race. Run with endurance. And then it goes on to say in verse 14, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will uh, see the Lord. Well, to uh, the striving for peace for everyone, uh, we have a, a cross-reference to that in Romans 12, 18. Romans 12, 18, which says, I'm turning to it. Romans 12, 18. 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And this verse, Romans 12, 18, uh, is in a list of, kind of moral, ethical, uh, imperative uh, admonitions about basic Christian living. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Strive for peace with everyone. All right? But that, that is balanced with this. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Note the juxtapositioning of those Two things in one sentence. You're striving for peace with everyone. Um, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But in the next breath, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So the point is, it's not peace with everyone at any price. Our peace with men, particularly unbelievers. And we, we do want, we want to be good citizens. We want to be good neighbors. We love our neighbor as ourselves. That includes everybody. 
and we want to live peaceably with all. We want to be a witness, an example of the peaceable kingdom of Jesus Christ. So we're not troublemakers. We're not brawlers. We're not pugnacious. We're not looking for a fight. We're not looking for a debate. We're not trying to get up in somebody's face because they disagree with us politically. We're not that. We're peaceable people. We're peaceable. But we're not peaceable at any price. We're not peaceable to the point of compromising our relationship with God. That's the point. Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Maybe that word holiness needs a a little more definition. Uh, Maybe that word holiness uh, might have a negative connotation or or you might have a, a, a wrong connotation, a wrong understanding of striving for holiness. So you get the idea of some emaciated, old, bearded man wrapped up in a, some kind of tattered shawl, you know, sitting up on top of a mountain. That's not what biblical holiness is. Okay? You think about, oh, the holy man, you know, kind of the, the weirdo, you know, whatever. That, that's not biblical holiness. Biblical holiness means devoted to God. You understand that devoted, not only in the sense of an emotional kind of devotion, but that you belong to God. You've been devoted as a sacrifice. You know, sacrifices were offered. They were devoted to God. You know, the, the, the firstborn uh, bull was devoted. It was set apart. It was dedicated, right? And it was sacrificed. I mean, that's what, it, that's what it means to be devoted. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 2. It's being devoted in that sense, given over, given over to. If you're devoted to your spouse, right? You have given yourself over to him or her. You belong to him or her. Your identity is with him or her. That's what it means to be devoted. Well, to be holy is to be devoted to the Lord. Given over to the Lord. To to have been bought with a price. The price of his own blood. And, And therefore to be offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. That's holiness. And and holiness manifests itself in a personal desire to honor and glorify God in all that we do and say. And, and, And the worst possible thing would be for us to bring shame to the name of God, an insult to the name of God, or, or otherwise do something, do something so contrary to His will that would, would grieve His heart. I mean, think about, I mean, you can use the, the marital relationship, 
right? It's not a bad way to think about it. When, when you're totally devoted to your spouse, I mean, you want everything you do and say to honor and respect and show love for and, you know, be for the good of your, your spouse if you're totally devoted, right? I mean, what kind of a spouse is it that goes out and, you know, well, you know, or talks badly or about his or her spouse. And, I mean, so to, to be holy is, is simply a, the first answer to the catechism, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's what it is. And that's the goal of your life. That's the aim of your life. Worldliness is just the opposite. Worldliness has no concern for God. Worldliness has no concern for the honor and glory of God. Worldliness is a matter of, you know, what I want out of life, achieving my goals, uh, and attaining some level of status and uh, physical prosperity and comfort, and doing what I want to do when I want to do it, and, you know, being nice and all that kind of stuff, but just basically, you know, living life my way without regard for God until it comes to the point when I might die. And then maybe I'll think about God. Well, hmm. Holiness, you see, is the opposite of worldliness. And the definition of worldliness, <laughs> great definition of worldliness is this. Um, worldliness is that set of values in which sin seems normal, and holiness seems strange. Worldliness is that system of values in which sin seems normal. And holiness seems strange. Okay? Are you willing to be a stranger and pilgrim on the earth? Because you're set apart, you're devoted to God, and are thereby, therefore, pursuing holiness, the likeness of Christ, the imitation of Christ. And that includes the way in which we respond to persecution, opposition, suffering in this world. Real quickly, verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. What's interesting here, what I want you to get is, here's a command, here's an imperative. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no bitter root of, uh, no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. What the point of this is, is that the preacher to the Hebrews, the preacher to this congregation, and the Word of God to us is saying we're responsible for one another. We're responsible for the health and the purity of the body. Right? You can't understand this apart from understanding that you're, you're hearing this Word of God being preached and taught to a body of believers. It's very clear at this point. See to it 
that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. In other words, all of this exhortation to you to run the race with endurance, to persevere, to press on, well, guess what, brother? You're responsible for your brother. The brother who's sitting next to you in the sanctuary or around the table a Bible study, or wherever else you meet. You see, we're responsible for one another. We are a corporate body. We are not isolated individuals. This is accountability. This is accountability in the church. The gathered, new covenant people of God who as a body, as a corporate body, belong to Jesus. Right? Are you getting this? There, there is corporate identity here. And there is mutual accountability here. And so, yeah, we're all responsible for each other. And we're all to be accountable to each other. That's why you encourage one another. And when we, if the Lord wills, you know, we start meeting back together again, we're gonna make sure everybody gets the call out and we meet back. When your churches start meeting together again, and somebody says, well, you know what? I kind of got used to watching it on the internet. I kind of like not having to get up and get dressed. I kind of like just laying in bed and drinking my coffee and watching church. Oh yeah, I kind of think that's a good thing. I hope our church, I, I think now our church is going to keep on doing that live streaming. We're just going to lay up in bed. My wife and I, we're we just laying up in our bathrobes, drinking our coffee and going to church like that. Uh-uh, no, you're not either. No, you're not. No, you are not. Don't be that person. You be the person that calls that person and says, Fred, what do you mean? You're falling away. That's not faithfulness. That's not running the race. That's not being with the body. See, so we got a, that's just a little practical application, a little heads up for everybody. And because, you know, there are other applications as, as well. No uh, root of bitterness springs up. Somebody, you know, a troublemaker in the church. Somebody's a troublemaker in the church, everybody just kind of, you know, ignores him, lets him go on making his trouble and running his mouth and saying bad things about your preacher and this, that, and the other. And guess what's going to happen? Well, it's going to end up maybe splitting your church. Well, that's got to stop. That's no way. We don't let that root of bitterness, negativity, grumbling, murmuring. And actually this is a reference uh, back to um, in Deuteronomy about, uh, you can look at, um, I believe it's in uh, Deuteronomy 28 um, that he is actually referring to here. But anyway, we're going to move on more quickly. Uh, and by many become defiled, uh, that no one is sexually immoral. Oh, what about sexual immorality in our churches today? Kind of wink at it? No, it's a serious sin and it must, has to be dealt with. 
or unholy like Esau, a worldling like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, if you remember that story. Esau was the firstborn. And um, Isaac was going to get, you know, he, he should have received um, Isaac's blessing. But he sold his birthright to Jacob, the younger brother. And so Jacob, uh, for a bowl of beans, for a bowl of beans, he was, he was hungry in the moment. His God was his belly. Um, he didn't have a view toward the future. He wanted instant gratification. He sold his inheritance. For what? A bowl of beans. That's people who are not spiritually minded. That's people whose hearts and minds are not set on the glory that is yet to be revealed. That's people who are living for the present. Living for the moment. This world is all there is. He who dies with the most toys wins. Give it to me now because I might not get it later. That's Esau. That's Esau. And it's deadly in the life of the church to become so worldly minded in the church that we do not keep our hearts and minds set on Christ. And it says, For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. His heart had been hardened. He was sorry. He he was sorry for the consequences of his sin, but he wasn't sorry, truly sorry for his sin. He could say he was sorry that he did it because of the consequence, but he wasn't sorry that he did it because it was an offense to God. And it it actually revealed his own character. and, And so he lost it. He lost his inheritance, his birthright, and it was never given back to him. Well, all of this is a word to us to run the race with endurance, looking to Jesus, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. It all comes back to Him, what He has done for us, His superiority over all, I mean, the author, the preacher to the Hebrews is saying, Jesus is worth it all. He's worth it all. And, and so therefore, brothers and sisters, persevere, endure. Be assured that God loves you even when times are hard. And God is working His good in you through the adversities which you are experiencing. He is conforming you to the likeness of His Son. For those who suffer with Christ shall be glorified together with Him. Romans 8, 17. And so it's all worth it. And and therefore, encourage one another. Hold one another accountable. Maintain purity in the church. And pursue holy lives. 
for the glory of God. I hope this has been somewhat helpful to you today. And uh, Lord willing, uh, next week we'll finish up chapter 12 and then we'll move on into 13. And, you know, I, I think we'll be concluding our, our study of Hebrews by mid-May and we'll be right on schedule. So uh, just know that my, uh, I miss seeing you all on Wednesday morning and uh, I pray the Lord's blessing uh, on you. Also, our Tuesday morning Senior Saints group, if our Tuesday morning Senior Saints are listening in, I hope you are. I miss being with y'all. Y'all are a fun, fun, fun group, and it'll be a great day when we can get back together in fellowship. So the Lord bless you, and I pray that this would be helpful to you. In Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word of truth, your word of life, your word of instruction. And, and we pray that your spirit will help us to understand these things and internalize these things, these truths of your word. Bless all those who are listening in and those who are dear to them. Keep us in your grace and in the way everlasting. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.